Moist knew about the zeitgeist. He tasted it in the wind, and sometimes it allowed him to play with it. He understood it, and now it hinted at speed, escape, something wonderfully new, the very bones of the land awakening. And suddenly it seemed to cry out for motion, new horizons, faraway places, anywhere that is not here. No doubt about it, the railway was going to turn coal into gold. Excuse me, young man. Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobby Nobbs, who had taken it upon themselves to patrol the line of expectant sightseers queuing for a ride on the train, looked around uncertainly. It had been a long time since Sergeant Colon had been a young man, and as for Nobby Nobbs, although it was generally agreed that he was the younger of the two, there was some doubt about whether the term Homo sapiens could be applied to him. The jury of Ankh-Morpork was out. Colon and Nobby were supposed to have been on the beat in the shades, but Colon had delegated that task to a couple of new recruits. Good experience for them, Nobby, and it's likely to be a dangerous business, this streaming engine. Need someone to have a look-see. A couple of experienced coppers, let's say, prepared to put themselves in harm's way for the public good. Young man, excuse me, came the voice again. The speaker was a harassed-looking lady with two boys at heel, who weren't at all at heel and were expressing their frustration at having to wait for the promised ride on the train in the supremely annoying ways that only small children can manage. In a desperate attempt to distract them from their contest to inconvenience as many people in the queue in front of them as possible, their mother had seized on the first official-looking people who might be able to entertain her offspring with some interesting facts. "'We were wondering if you could tell us how this locomotive goes,' she asked. Fred Colon took a deep breath. "'Well, Mrs., there's the boiler, you see. It's like a kettle.' This was not enough for the smaller child, who said, "'Mum's got a kettle. That doesn't go anywhere.' His mother tried again. "'And how does this boiler work?' "'Well, you see, it sends the hot water to the engine,' said Nobby hurriedly. "'Right,' said the lady. "'And then what happens?' "'And then all the hot water goes into the wheels.' The elder boy looked sceptical. "'Really? How's that done?' Nobby, cornered, said, "'I think the sergeant can tell you that.' A little bead of sweat appeared on Colon's face, and he was aware that the two children were looking at him as if he were some kind of exhibit. "'Oh, well, the water is magnetic, right, because of all that spinning,' he said. The elder boy said, "'I don't think it works like that.' but Colon was on a roll and ignored him. The spinning causes the magnetism, and that's what makes the water stick in there. Lots of iron in train wheels tends to reason, and that's what keeps the train on the iron road magnetism. The smaller boy changed tack. Why does the engine go chuff? That's because it's chuffed, said Colon with a sudden flash of inspiration. See, you've heard of chuffed. That's where it comes from. Nobby looked at his friend in admiration. "'Is that why, Sarge? I never thought of that. And when it's had enough of a chuffing, there's enough magnetism to hold the train on the iron road, see?' The last phrase was delivered in a rush in the hope that no more questions would be forthcoming. But it doesn't work like that with children. The elder boy had had enough and decided to show off the knowledge gleaned from friends who had been there earlier in the day. "'Isn't it to do with reciprocating motions?' he said with a glint in his eye. "'Ah, well, yes,' blustered Colon. "'You've got to have your recip—' 
pro-cater-re-rotions to get the right kind of chuff. And when everything is chuffing and reciprocatoring, away we go. The smaller child was still puzzled, as well he might be. I still don't understand, mister. Well, perhaps you're too young to know, said Colon, taking refuge in the excuse used by exasperated adults through the millennia. Very technical stuff you're chuffing. Probably shouldn't even be trained to explain it to children. I don't think I understand it either, said the mother. You know clockwork, said Nobby, coming to the rescue again. It pretty much goes like clockwork, only bigger and faster. How's it wound up? asked the boy. Ah, oh, yes, said Colon. That chuffing noise, of course, is the winding up. And when it's wound up, then off it chuffing goes. The smaller boy held up a clockwork engine and said, He's right, Mum. You wind them up and away they go. Bemused, the lady said, Right, well, thank you, gentlemen, for a comprehensive little talk. I'm sure the boys were fascinated. And she handed Colon several coins. Colon and Nobby watched the happy family as they climbed onto the cart behind Iron Gerda. And Nobby said, It's a nice feeling, isn't it, Sarge, being helpful to people? Moist's cab halted at the palace, and he helped an exhausted drumknot up the stairs. Amazingly, he was beginning to feel sorry for the little chap, who was looking like a lotus-eater who had run out of lotuses. Moist wondered whether it should be low tea, but thought, well, what the hell. Moist very carefully knocked on the door of the patrician's office, which was opened by one of the dark clerks. The clerk stared at Drumnot and looked askance at Moist, as Lord Vetinari himself stood up in surprise, leaving Moist impaled between two askances. So he saluted smartly and said, "'I beg to report, sir, that Mr. Drumnot, very gallantly and fearlessly, and at some personal cost, has helped me form an opinion as to the practical aspects of the new-fangled train,' risking his life repeatedly in so doing, and for my part I have seen to it that your government has a suitable measure of control over the railways. Sir Harry King is funding further research and trials, but personally, my lord, I believe the new railway will be a winner. I am convinced that this prototype can pull more stock than dozens of horses. Mr Simnel seems to be very thorough in his work, extremely meticulous, and above all, the people appear to have taken the train to their hearts.' Moist waited. Lord Vetinari could outstare a statue and make even a statue start to feel nervous and confess. Moist's counter was a fetching grin, which he knew annoyed Vetinari beyond measure, and there was absolute silence in the oblong office while blank stare and cheery grin battled it out for supremacy in some other dimension, which ended when his lordship, still staring fixedly at Moist, said to the nearest dark clerk, Mr Ward. Please take Mr. Drumnot to his rooms and clean him up, if you would be so kind. When they had departed, Lord Vetinari sat down and drummed his fingers on his desk. So, Mr. Lipvig, you believe in the train, do you? It certainly appears that my secretary is impressed. I have never seen him so excited by something that wasn't written on paper. And the afternoon edition of the Times seems to be in agreement with him. Vetinari walked over to the window and stared down at the city in silence for a moment and continued. What can a mere jobbing tyrant achieve in the face of the even greater multi-headed tyrant of public opinion and a regrettably free press? 
Excuse me, sir, but if you wanted to, you could shut down the papers, couldn't you? And forbid the train and put anyone you like in prison, yes? Still staring down at the city, Lord Vetinari said, My dear Mr. Lipvig, you are clever and certainly smart, but you have yet to find the virtue of wisdom. And wisdom tells a powerful prince that firstly he shouldn't put just anyone he likes in prison, because that is where he puts the people he doesn't like. And secondly, that mere unthinking dislike of something, someone, or some situation is no mandate for drastic action. Therefore, while I have given you permission to continue, the train does not have my wholehearted approval. Neither does it have my curse, the patrician seemed to consider for a moment, and added, yet. He walked up and down again for a second or two, and then, as if the thought had only just struck him, said, Mr. Lipvig, do you think it a possibility that a train could, in fact, get all the way to, say, Uberwald? That journey is not only extremely slow, tedious, and uncomfortable by coach, but it is fraught with many uh, perils and traps for the unwary traveller. He paused and added, and indeed the unlucky bandit. "'Oh, yes, that's where Lady Margolotta lives, isn't it, sir?' said Moist, breezily. "'But it would mean negotiating the willingness pass, sir. "'Very dangerous up there. "'Bandits have been known to knock out coaches by throwing down rocks from the crags.' "'But there is no way without a very lengthy detour, Mr. Livvig, as you probably know.' "'In that case, my lord, I think it might be possible to construct such a thing as an armoured train,' said Moist, inventing furiously." He was gratified to see that Lord Vetinari brightened when he heard that, repeating the words armoured train once or twice more. Then his lordship said, Can it really be possible? And in the squirrel cage of Moist's mind he thought, Can it? Can it really? It must be more than twelve hundred miles. It takes well over two weeks by coach, and that's if you don't get hijacked. But who was going to try to hijack an armoured train? The engine would be wanting water frequently, and is it possible that it could carry enough coal for the whole journey? The numbers rolled in his head. Stopping places, troughs for water, mountains, gorges, bridges, marshland. So many things, any one of which could scupper the project. But going to Uberwald would mean passing through so many other places on the way, and all of them could be opportunities to make money. The demons of critical path analysis swarmed around his brain. There was always something that you had to do before you could do the thing you wanted to do, and even then you might get it wrong. To Vetinari he said cheerily, Well, sir, I don't see why not. And, of course, for such a long journey it should be possible to sleep on the train and for heads of state to occupy a complete suite of carriages, if not the whole train. Surely that could be arranged? Moist held his breath. After a few seconds, his lordship said, "'That would be appropriate, but, Mr. Lipvig, I am not entirely bribed. The train must prove itself both financially and mechanically. However, I look forward to its success. It seems, Mr. Lipvig, that you are using your extra cheery voice, and so once again you find yourself in your own chosen environment, that being the centre of everything.' But tell me, where do you think will be the destination of the first commercial train? Querm? 
Actually, sir, that has been discussed, and it looks as if it's going to be Stolat, because that's where Mr. Simnel has his machine tools and a large stock of materials that he would need to transport to Ankh-Morpok. Besides, that place is a nexus for the Stow Plains, and nexus means... Lord Vetinari raised a hand and said, Thank you, Mr. Lipvig, I do know what a nexus is. Moist smiled and headed for the door, showing his panic only on the inside, and as his hand reached the doorknob, Vetinari's voice behind him said, Mr. Lipvig, you surely realise that a thoughtful prince, a prince who wishes to keep his throne for some time, and is shrewd in the ways of people, would not travel in a thrilling, armoured train. He would put somebody else on that train, somebody expendable, having himself travelled the previous day in a suitable disguise. After all, there are such things as very, very large boulders, and most definitely there are a great many spies. But I shall consider your idea. It has a beguiling ring to it. Over the next few weeks, more and more people heard about Iron Gerda, and even larger crowds passed through Ankh-Morpork to see the new marvel of the age, including delegates, ambassadors, and representatives from most of the towns across the Stow Plains. And, of course, there were the other artificers and freelance tinkerers inspecting everything they could see and trying to find out everything they could about what it was they weren't being allowed to see. Every night, Iron Gerda was driven along a set of rails into a locked shed on the compound where she would be safe from interference due to the presence of Harry's most fearsome attack dogs and also two golems, brought in by Harry because, unlike dogs, they couldn't be killed by a meal laced with poison poked under the door. They patrolled the huge shed, sometimes with members of the City Watch, just for the look of the thing. Moist spent a lot of time in and around the compound in his not-very-official but somehow understood role as the grease in the outfit's management, as essential as the buckets of the stuff that seemed to be required in everything to do with the railway. He had, after all, a stake in the railway's fortunes as head of the Royal Bank of Ankh-Morpork, where money was starting to go in and out faster than a revolving door as Harry wrote cheques for iron shipments, timber and extra metal workers many of whom were from the company of free golems, every one of them his own man, albeit one made of clay. And grease was definitely needed here. There was a mountain of paperwork already being generated by the railway, which Moist skilfully passed along to Drumnot, whose passion for paperwork was not quite yet eclipsed by his new passion for the railway. The little pink man was in hog heaven. Surveyors had been called in to work on a route, they were everywhere with their little theodolites. They treated Dick Simnel as one of them, only different. Moist was pleased about that. Dick had friends now, and if they didn't understand all of his language, they did indeed recognise it as bona fide language somewhat similar to their own, and therefore they gave him respect. After all, these other people, in a way, did what he did, only in different shapes, stresses, curves, loads, tolerances and substances and thus, where it counted, were brothers under the skin. And, like Dick, they worked by numbers, and knew the absolute necessity of getting them right, and especially they knew the absolute requirement for precision. In the compound, the sound of metal on metal filled the air, and on every flat surface in Harry King's offices, maps were laid out, and they were good maps. Lads, Dick Simnel had said to the Theodolite men, 
Harry King is a good gaffer who pays top dollar for a top-rate service. He's chancing everything to get the locomotives running, so I want you to make it easier for him. Iron Gerda can take some slopes, and by X she'll take more before I'm through, but for now, what I'm telling thee is to keep permanent way as level as possible. And I know there are such things as tunnels and bridges, but they take a lot of time and are flipping expensive. Occasionally a little detour might save us a lot of money, which is to say your wages. But think on, and I know it's obvious, but do not go anywhere near swamps and other shaky ground. A locomotive with its coal tenders, carriages and crew is reet, reet heavy. The last thing we want to be learning is how to pull a bogged-down locomotive out at quicksand. And off they'd gone. The men with clean shirts every day, the men of the sliding rule. Moist liked them because they were everything he wasn't. But maybe he should teach them about being a scoundrel. Oh, not about taking money from widows and orphans, but about being aware that many people weren't as straight as a theodolite. The surveyors proved only too happy to agree that the area around Stolat was the gateway to the Stow Plains, so now all they needed to do was get the people with, as it were, the keys to the gates to understand this, a job that everybody was extremely happy to turn over to Mr Moist von Lipvig. As it turned out, there were a great many landowners between Ankh-Morpork and Stolat, and any number of tenants. Nobody minded a clax tower nearby. Indeed, often these days they demanded one. But, well, a mechanical thing chuffing through your cornfields and cabbage plantations, spewing out smoke and cinders, well, that was a different matter, which would be the kind of problem that could be settled only by the application of that wonderful lubricant known to every negotiator as warm specie. The term specie requires the person asking for it to rub their thumb and forefinger together in a knowing way, if you know what I mean, Governor. The aristocrats, if such they could be called, generally hated the whole concept of the train on the basis that it would encourage the lower classes to move about and not always be available. On the other hand, some were of a type that Moist recognised, shrewd old buffers who'd lead you to believe they were harmless and possibly slightly gaga, and then, with a little twinkle in their eye, bang, squeeze more money out of you than a snake, twinkling all the way. Lord Underdale, one such gentleman, had plied Moist with an indecent amount of gin and brandy while naming his terms. "'Ah, see here, young man,' twinkle, twinkle, you can take your tracks across my land if we can agree a route, and it won't cost you a penny, if you will firstly carry my freight for nothing, and secondly put a loading station just where I want it so that I can also travel anywhere I want, merely by flagging down one of your locomotives. You see, young man, twinkle, twinkle, I go free and my freight goes free. Do we have an accord? Moist looked out of the wonderful mullioned windows at the smoke beyond the ancient trees and said, "'What exactly is your freight, sir?' The old man, all beautiful long white hair and ditto beard, said, "'Well, now, since you ask, it's iron ore with a certain amount of lead and zinc. Oh, dear, I see your glass is empty again. I must insist you have another brandy. It's such a cold day, is it not?' Twinkle, twinkle. Moist smiled. "'Well, your lordship, you are a tough bargainer, and no mistaking,' twinkle, twinkle, twinkle. "'Since our project is very heavy when it comes to metals, we could perhaps do business. 
That is to say, if our surveyors don't come up with any problems, such as swampy ground and such like. Well, Mr. Moist, since you have drunk every last drop of brandy I have pressed on you without appearing to be the least bit intoxicated, I must consider you a man after my own heart, twinkle, twinkle. And here Moist definitely detected the subtle signs of intoxication as the old man said, I have to tell you that yesterday I was contacted by a man who said he represented the up-and-coming Big Cabbage Railway Company. Moist knew about them, yes, they were a company all right, but they didn't yet have a single engine or anybody as skilful as Simnel to tame the raw steam. He rather suspected that a lot of money would go their way from the gullible, and then, when there was enough, the bright office would be empty, and the gentleman concerned, with different moustaches, would be legging it somewhere else to start up another railway company. Part of him longed to be one of them, and then he thought, I am one of them, only this one has to work. Apparently, continued Lord Underdale, they are going to build a far superior engine to the one being demonstrated in Ankh Morpork. The old man laughed at Moist's almost total lack of expression and said, You told me that you represented a railway company, Mr. Lipvig. Well, now your company has company. Moist belched forensically, very carefully choosing his time. This may be the case, sir, but we have... "'A working engine which is the toast of Ankh Morpork.' "'And here Moist allowed a certain slur to enter his voice and continued, "'And now why don't we, as gentlemen, cut our deal and shake hands on it? "'Like gentlemen, so we both know where we stand.' "'He stood up and stumbled a little, saw the extra twinkle in the old man's face, and rejoiced. "'Later in the stables, as he saddled up to go home,' Moist audited his afternoon's work. This was a game he knew all too well. He had seen the trap and had been prepared, and thus the side deal for iron ore shipments and railway access was a sensible one, but slightly more beneficial for the railway, in recognition of the fact that elderly gentlemen shouldn't try to get impressionable young men drunk, especially when they own more land than any reasonable person could ever need. Yes, Moist thought. Moral compass? He smiled. Before he mounted up, Moist carefully removed from about his person two hot water bottles and a rubber pipe. He very carefully stowed both bottles in a large padded saddlebag, smiling as he did so. The old boy really shouldn't have tried to make him drunk. It was so unethical. When Moist eventually got back to the city, he went straight to the centre of Harry King's compound, ran up the stairs to Sir Harry's great big office and dropped yet another portfolio prepared by Mr Drumnot of all the contacts he had dealt with, the rents, the routes agreed. These are for your lads, Harry, and this is for you. He set down very carefully a large crate containing a number of bottles. Harry stared at him and said, What the hell are these for? Moist shrugged and tapped his nose. Well, Harry, it's like this. A lot of the people I have to deal with are elderly men who think they're cunning and try to fill me with expensive alcohol in the belief that they can get the better of the deal and no mistake. Of course, I drink every drink put in front of me. No, don't look like that. I really can hold my drink. In fact, I can hold a great deal of drink. 
and I'm pleased to report that rubber doesn't detract from the taste of whisky, very fine brandy, or Jimkin Bearhugger's best gin. Well done, Mr. Lipvig. I've always known you're a man to watch extremely carefully, and I do so like to see a master at work. Now, follow me, Mr. Lipvig, and try not to slosh, will you? In a few weeks, the compound had changed beyond recognition. The big drop forges that used to thud behind Quarry Lane had been moved wholesale out of the centre of the city and enormously augmented their rate of hammering with the rhythms of the railway factory. Harry seemed very proud of it, considering that if muck was brass, a thump of the hammer was pennies from heaven. As they walked through the cacophony, he shouted, Great lads, the golems! They're always punctual and they don't get ill. Most of all, they just like working. And I like anyone who likes to work. Goblins, golems, I don't care what you are if you're a good worker. He thought for a moment and added, As long as you don't dribble too much. Just look at the way those lads hammer things with their fists. Wish I could get more of them, but you know how it is. Moist looked around the fiery hellhole that was the ironworks. In the satanic air he could just about tell the golems from the human workers in their leather overalls, because the golems were the ones walking around holding pieces of red-hot iron in their bare hands. The furnaces illuminated the grey sky, and always and forever the clanging went on, and the pile of fresh new rails got bigger and bigger. He nodded, since normal speech was clearly out of the question among the clanging and the banging. Indeed, he knew how it was. In short, the citizens of Ankh-Morpork, who might be expected to fill the heavy-lifting trades, such as the golems and the trolls, were increasingly realising that just because they were big and tough did not mean they had to do a big, tough job if they didn't want to. This was, after all, Ankh-Morpork, where a man walked free, even if he was not, strictly speaking, a man. The problem, if you could call it that, had been building up for some time. Moist had first noticed what was happening when Adorabelle said that her new hairstylist was a troll, Mr. Teasy-Weezy Faunasite. The moment Moist heard the name, he went for the dictionary and was relieved to find that Faunasite was a rare lead-copper-chromatic-arsenate-hydroxide mineral. The troll was a lovely bluey-green colour. And as it turned out, a pretty good hairdresser, according to Adorabelle and her friends. And there it was, the new reality. If all sapient species were equal, that's what you got. Golem housekeepers and goblin maids, and, he thought, troll lawyers. Harry King was rumbling on as they emerged back into the open. It's a bugger! Now they're free, you can't get the golems. Ask your missus. They're all off doing landscape gardening and such like daisy rubbish, and I reckon I'm paying every human ironworker in the damn city double the odds, and only twenty-one of them heavy boys. It's such a shame, such a shame. I don't know, Harry, you seem to be moving phenomenally fast. Harry nudged Moist and said in a conspiratorial tone, I'll have you dumped in the river if you tell anybody this, but I'm loving it. I mean, most of my life has been not to put too much of a fine point on it, shit. Honest to goodness, shit. Not to mention, of course, piss, which has also been a very good friend to me. But you see, all that is just moving stuff about, not actually making something. And it gets better because, you see, it's something me and the Duchess can talk about in polite company. Oh, of course, I'll still be maintaining the night soil business and all of that. It is, after all, my bread and butter, so to speak, 
which, to tell you the truth, is more like staking all the trimmings nowadays, but right now my art is in the iron. And who can say that ain't beautiful, Mr Litvig? I mean, daffodils. Well, I quite like them, but look at the sheen on the steel, the sweat on the men. The future being made one hammer blow at a time. Even the slag is beautiful in the way. Ein Gerda passed by on her everlasting journey around the compound, and Harry said, What we need is the right class of poet. He flung out a hand towards the admirers with their notebooks and all the others who clung to the railings. Look at them all. They're looking for miracles, and you know what? They'll get them. It started to rain, but the onlookers, especially the train spotters, with their very useful clothing, just stood there, watching Ein Gerda kick up a mist into the air. It seemed to Moist that for a moment Harry King was somehow different, even more alive than usual. And Harry, it had to be said, was pretty vital in any case. And now Harry King, cesspit man, was metamorphosing into a national treasure. 